Welcome to Team Up, a podcast where we talk about team-based primary care in British Columbia. I'm Sarah Fletcher from the Innovation Support Unit, and Morgan Price, Sean Ebert, and I got together to reflect on the Team Up webinar that happened in May focused on experiences from the field. We had a really great panel of expert team-based care members on the webinar who shared some of their key takeaways, what they learned, and their reflections from working in, in team environments. We were joined by Aaron Miller, a clinical support coordinator for our UPCC, as well as Pamela Tour, a social worker who has lots of experience working in team-based care, and Erin Barakoff, a nurse practitioner who works on Vancouver Island. And they each brought really unique perspectives. They had some great reflections. I'm wondering, you've both worked in a variety of kind of team-based care teams and settings. What were some of the big things that jumped out from you in, in the webinar last week? I really enjoyed the conversation. A couple of the highlights that really stood up for me was each of the people involved in the various teams highlighted the need for protected time and a supported process. And that came up multiple times in the conversation that this didn't happen without a lot of front-end effort, and that included protected time and supported process. And the support came from many different angles. And the other point that I really thought was interesting was the comment on the need for diversity of perspective. And I think as the teams evolved, it became more apparent to them in the conversation, the way they described their experience, that the more input they had from the various team members as the team grew and matured, that allowed a, a much higher level of conversation and appreciation understanding and development of the service models that they have. One of the things I thought was so interesting was Aaron gave this example of how in their team they actually went and job shadowed each other's roles to get a better idea of what the different team members did and you know I've heard that in theory a lot but I've never actually heard of people going and doing that. So that was a great example that she was able to give of actually spending a day following the social worker around to find out what kinds of things the social worker was actually able to do and, and how they intentionally did that in their team. That was really neat. And Sarah, we, we do that with our trainees a lot more than we do it with people who already know, even though we don't, who are the preceptors. So I often will suggest to students and, and residents, go spend a day with the nurse. So go spend a day with, or even a half day. And sometimes students will go, are you just trying to brush me off? But actually, no, it's, it's way more valuable if you've never spent a day in a pharmacy or never spent a day on outreach with a nurse to do that, to see what it's like and see how it's different and, and still know that you've got your preceptor within phone's reach, at least. So we do it with the trainees. It's harder to do as a fee-for-service doctor to say, I'm not going to see patients and instead I'm going to shadow the other team members but it's so valuable and I, I don't know Sean if you've done that before it's it's great to do is every once in a while ad hoc and it's really hard though not to be the doctor in the room or the provider and, and simply observe so I think there may be an opportunity here to to have some more training that's online recorded so people can see what it is like never quite the same, but might be helpful to do that. No, that's an excellent idea. And, and we as well schedule our students in with allied professionals routinely. I've rarely had an opportunity to, to do that. The closest I've come with some of the project work I've done is we do process mapping. And when you do that with your collective team, it is surprising what comes out. I've been many times astonished that if I just changed a very small bit of the way I worked, it made a huge difference for my teammate. And not so much from the, the process mapping side of things, but 
And that was really the inspiration for team mapping, this idea that you need, really need to think think about roles and tasks, really thinking about how the team is working together and spending time having those discussions to get that role clarity is just so valuable. It, it's interesting that the sense that this is difficult to do and the need to have help to become more of a team, it comes up regularly. And and I think it does take energy. And I, don't, I know very few people who have said, but I'm going back to my solo practice or I don't want to work in a team after this. Truly dysfunctional teams aside, um, <laughs> doing the work and getting a team to work well together is rewarding itself. And then the evolution of the team and being effective and more effective is so much better. One of the common themes around change management is people are really hesitant to take that step. And like you said, when you encourage and create the environment where people can do that, rarely will they go back to to what they used to do. But it is a tough one to kind of get them moving along that pathway initially. Erin, in her nurse practitioner role in the webinar, really highlighted the value of some of the specific supports that PSP were able to provide to come in and facilitate those team discussions. So she talked about how they had bi-weekly Zoom meetings, protected time with standing agendas for their team things. But when they had these bigger changes to think about, that was when they drew on these external supports. And I'm wondering for both of you, if you think about your experience in teams, can you tell me any stories about like particular moments in time where you all came together and decided on a change and how that worked? Well, Sarah, we've had in our community health center, we've been running for longer than I've been there. The Kulig Society has been providing health care for about 20, coming up to 22 years now. And we have an annual retreat where we typically will bring one big thing to work on. And, and then we have part of the time to just spend being a team unstructured. And that's hugely valuable, but almost every time the one the one big thing comes and we, we are applying it you know, a week or two later. Access has been a huge thing for us for many years. And, and around the time I started, we wanted to move to advanced access. And so we had a huge discussion about how does that work and what could we do differently because people who were booking appointments a week or two in advance weren't showing up. So while we had a full slate for the day we were seeing half of the people or a bit more than half of the people each day. And then we moved to an advanced access model. But for people who don't have phones, an advanced access model means right. lining up at 8.30 in the morning for an appointment at 2 p.m. or whenever you happen to get it. So it's never been a great fit. And so that's an example where we keep coming back to that topic and we will spend a half day and we'll think about and we'll, okay, how can we do it differently? And we tend to do those internally. We haven't brought in a facilitator for that work. We have brought in facilitators for some of the group process work, though, or you know, running a meditation or yoga. We've got a, a bunch of people that like to do yoga in the groups. And we almost always do external catering. Which helps. Food is really an important team building sort of thing, right? Yeah, my experiences have been similar. You know, you create the environment to meet and doing it around a topic is, is good because it gets people sort of interested. And then the, the interesting other piece of that is how do you create a team building exercise? And there's lots of different models of team building exercise. In one case, we went out to a indigenous uh, community hall and we did canoeing lessons. So you can build those pieces. And we ended up having a facilitated yoga session during the day, a bit of a mindfulness bent to it. And that was again, done through a combination of facility engagement, practice support, division and you know those sort of uh, support structures and it's interesting in rural we we wear so many hats at different tables that you tend to be a little more connected to all of the resources that you have available 
So you will often do these exercises with support from the various tools you have at your disposal, like divisions, PSP, even PQI, sometimes the health authority, and often our, our private clinic would be engaged in some. A few times we have brought in facilitators. Often though, like you mentioned, Morgan, we will do some of this work internally. And even that exercise in itself helps to build the team dynamic quite nicely. I know this year in particular, we've been talking about an external facilitation or a quasi-external. It might actually be the ISU that helps our clinic in, in its next big shift. This year in particular, I think there have been so many changes in our practice with the combination of the pandemic and the opioid crisis that, that even though we've been established for 22 years, there's just so much change that now is it be helpful to have a more robust process to make sure that the, the voices have space. And sometimes that can be hard internally that the people who tend to put their hands up to facilitate are the ones that often talk a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. And then it's much easier for them to keep talking and the quiet folks in the group don't feel they can speak. And that's what I think a huge value of a facilitator is. It isn't a team member. I think also it sort of makes it a bit formal too. I mean, a, a day retreat is formal in itself. And then if somebody else is coming into that moment, it's serious. It can be playful, but it also becomes important, and that then gives some weight to that. I think it gets people a little bit out of their sandboxes, right? There's somebody new in the room. You've got to be on your best behavior and maybe be a little bit more open to new ideas and and new suggestions. So much of the conversation in the webinar focused around the importance of communication in a team. We know that psychological safety is important now. We've heard about team agreements as a really good kind of key step in that communication journey as a team. Are there any other examples of tools that you've seen that have really helped figure out that communication? Yeah, in my in my practice world, uh, we've talked about this in, in previous conversations, is, is around the huddles and the sort of timely, quick, but targeted communication tools. And I, I lean in on the huddles a bit because there seems to be good uptake and people have gotten used to them, I find, over the last few years and to the point where they become, I guess, an expectation almost, which is nice. And if you miss it, you sort of feel like you've missed a, a significant part of the day. And, and another tool that we, we've tended to use, again, email's always there, but for very specific scheduling elements, we've ended up using WhatsApp at our clinic, which is quite interesting. We had this really complex way of trying to organize and share documents and do things, and the poor administrator was trying to manage all these complex schedules, and suddenly it became easy just to share a document on WhatsApp. So that's a couple of the tools that come to my mind. Yeah, you know, I think there's that right size, and huddles are that right. So many people can't do a day-long retreat, but 10 minutes in the morning, that maybe becomes 12 or 17, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you can fit it in and sort of squeeze that through the day a little bit. And because it's routine and it happens regularly, there's a real-time communication versus I have to wait till October. And and then it's repetitive, so you do get to see and hear from everybody and what's jumping up for them each day. And WhatsApp or things like it are great because it's a little bit asynchronous. And if you're working in a distributed team or a part-time team, and we have a lot of physicians, myself included, that are way less than an FTE. And then we have our, our nursing staff the same way they've they're either in different locations or they're in different organizations. They work part-time. So it's having something that is a bit asynchronous. So I don't have to be there for the huddle, but I still feel connected. And, and something like WhatsApp seems to be where clinics and practices are going to. 
in the webinar, that right size idea of, you know, what works for your team, I think really, really uh, came across. I think the other part we don't want to forget is the, the record for communication, even though it's patient-centered, obviously, because it's a chart for the person. There's a lot of communication that happens through a record, and you get to know people through how they write in the record as one avenue. It can't be the only thing, obviously, but it's, it's another avenue. Thinking about the, the EMR as both a communication messaging tool or whatever it is, but also how you were writing your plan sections to communicate back and forth and highlight for different providers is a great way to continue that communication. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Morgan. I was thinking EMR because if I go to my, my inbox, for example, I have a message and those messages are often connected to a patient chart. And then you can go in and have, have a look at, at what the details are. And one of the main projects we ended up doing was, was expanding our private EMR into the community allied team, which was quite an exercise at the time. One of the first, I think, to do in the province. So we had a lot of FIPA and PIPA and conversations, and it was quite a interesting exercise. However, we ended up getting to the point where then we could have very quick communication between allied professionals around patient care. It made a huge difference. I'm not saying everything else worked well necessarily, but that piece was a very advantageous development for our team. Yeah, you feel it when you run across the boundary of where your record stops and you have to use a different system mm -hmm. or the other person can't use the same one. And it's better now because people trailblazed like yourself, but uh, still it's a challenge. Yeah, it is. The one question I have, so one of the, the, the things that I know is a barrier for, for providers that haven't made the jump to team-based practice is the sense of how big the jump is and that it's one of those, if I change, I can't go back. And, and I mean, I, I keep saying, well, you won't want to, don't worry. But, you know, it's, it's daunting. The stakes feel very high from the other side. I keep thinking about what are the things that we can do to help reduce that, to give people the, to feel what it's like without that huge practice changing commitment. Are there ideas? Here's the ice cream pink spoon so you can try it out a little bit mm -hmm. before you get the whole ice cream yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question, is how to embark on the change management process of getting from one point to, to a new normal, if you will. And one of the examples I use is when I encouraged my colleagues to adopt an EMR, which was a monumental mental barrier for most of them. And we ended up doing it very incrementally over probably about a year and a half. And once you got to where you were going, there was no way they would go back. So I always often wondered what would be a comparable way of incrementally changing the way we practice. And I, I wish I had an answer to that. We had a number of false starts around interprofessional team development and uh, hence, hence team-based care in our practice environment. And I still don't think that they've been able to get where they wanted to go, mostly because of fear-based barriers and fear of ch changing the way people practice. And so not just physicians. Physicians were certainly a big part of that, but all of the, the allied team. And sometimes the barriers were systematic in terms of hierarchical structures and health authorities. And as Morgan mentioned, some of those policy or administrative barriers that we, we run up against. And the only way I can imagine getting around that is to really have leadership and the rest of the non-clinical team somehow on side to enable and promote the work. Because I think if ever there's a barrier that arrives, it just becomes too much for people then to carry on. The, the workload around clinical care is, is so high that 
if you're trying to make a change and you keep hitting barriers that are non-clinical, it doesn't lend itself to change. I think that's part of it. I just keep thinking about about how really, if you're bringing together a team, it's you're bringing together totally different cultures a lot of the time, mm-hmm. right? There's a very defined culture within health authorities. There's a very defined culture within private practice. And now you're trying to bring those two together. So there's clearly going to be challenges just just from that sense of culture of these these organizations and how do you get that to to work and i think that's where i keep coming back to that kind of thinking about it as a process and what are those kind of small pieces that you can start mm-hmm. and then that team agreement piece right getting everyone around the table to get some of those how are we going to communicate how are we going to resolve conflict what what are our core values as a team? What is it that we want out of our team? Yeah, and what are the expectations? And, and along with that, what are the responsibilities that are associated with, with that? And, and I think you're quite right, Sarah, that sort of early stage foundational process is critical. And it kind of always speaks to the go slow to go fast principle. And I think all of the panel members described it. It seems nice and rosy now, but they all said it was not easy. <laughs> and I think that's a really important message. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to get the story from each of you of what stands out to you as a highlightable team experience. Oh gosh, there's tons. I have to say, it's, it's some of it's the inside jokes that make the team for me work. And I'm lucky because so many of the people that I've had to work with and gotten to work with clinically, we have a very similar approach to care. And that's through finding the right group and and recruitment was careful. And I couldn't just join the clinic. I had to locum for a while. And then they were sort of like, okay, well, yeah, we think you can stick around. And the previous clinic before that, I was working as a resident in for a while. So I kind of knew what I was getting into. And that helped a lot in in both places. But when you say, what's memorable, I'll say, well, it's the weird things that then you remember. And often it's the smaller teams for me. So we're working during the day the way our clinic generally has worked. The beginning of the day is really busy. And then there's a couple of us that will stay on and do the, not quite after hours, but the later hours of the day into the evening. But not everybody. So the pharmacy will close up a little bit early and then there'll be, often it's one physician, one nurse, maybe one other person and the front staff. And those are always the times when I think about that are the most memorable. Every Tuesday for three weeks, we had a different patient come in with a pseudo seizure, which are not that common. And they all went to this one nurse who was working the Tuesday evenings. And so it became our thing. And so after that, every consult that she she made or every time I knocked on her door, it was, is it a pseudo seizure again? Right? I mean, I've probably seen you know half a dozen over the ma- last number of years, and and most of them were with this one nurse on one Tuesday, over one month, right? Like it was <laughs> sort of this crazy, it like and it wasn't the same person; it was multiple patients. So you know, those are the things that, that sort of stick. And then, even recently, she reached out to me to ask about about extra training and and stuff around electronic records, and, and I immediately thought about that. You know, our, our shared pseudo seizures experiences. So it's the shared experiences that then bond people together, I think, is a part for me that stands out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great example. Just as Morgan's speaking, I'm thinking of multiple situations where, <laughs> yeah, over 20 plus years working in, you know, fairly small venues, you get very intimately associated with your team, which shows in care and, and different experiences that you that you share. One of the other team experiences that came to my mind when you mentioned that, Sarah, was an effort to focus around a particular service area, chronic pain, which is a big complex service. 
but in rural um, healthcare, we, we really struggle because of the complexity. So I was able to use, again, a combination of resources through divisions, through facility engagement, through PSP. I actually managed to get the health authority involved. And when we started, it was basically using virtual technologies to bring in a pain specialist, a psychologist, and a rehab specialist because we had no access locally. And we ended up doing quarterly case reviews. So when we started, it was in one community in our division. And by the end of it, a year and a half later, we had every division in our rural division. It was nine communities of practice, including indigenous communities. And we had over 80 people on the, on the event by the end of it. And then, of course, the funding changed. But it just, again, highlighted to me how when you get onto something and, and put some structure and some support around it, you then get some engagement. And it became a very valuable tool because even though we'd be discussing a patient from one community, other communities would have similar experience and we shared those learnings. So that was one of the sort of team stories that stands out for me. And I guess really the, the key takeaway from both of those stories for me is that the idea of, you know, the importance of relationship in everything team, right? And then also the importance of that idea that you keep coming back to, Sean, of, of having those structures in place to support the, the team-focused work that needs to happen. With that combination of the relationships and then having the, the supports in place, that kind of seems to be key ingredients to sort of success. So to share on that, that one, maybe this is oversharing on the podcast, but <laughs> morning I got my vaccine, the second dose, and I was sitting there, then I stood up at the end of the 15 minutes and I turned around in the mass clinic and I noticed somebody from the from our, our team and I asked one of the volunteers, this is my second dose, is it okay if I talk to that person? And I think it's their second dose too. <laughs> and so we, we chatted for a few minutes and then two other people from the clinic noticed us and waved and then we all congregated with masks on indoors to take a quick selfie and then went outside and all caught up afterwards and we're all saying does this mean that we can start to hang out in two weeks again like we used to i mean i think that's a really good example of right now the team's like just itching to get back together in a way that that is so neat to see so that's another one of those moments i, I felt as the most socializing i'd done in person in months so awesome that you guys were all in the same time yeah it was it was that moment of yeah this is sort of that's what team is, right? It's you, you see people at a different spot and check in too. Well, I think it's going to be interesting now because we've had sort of these hybrid virtual in-person-ish teams for the past year and a half now. And there's this sort of now teams might be coming back together, but virtual care works really well for some people. So that hybrid might kind of stay. So then I think that the next big question in my head is, what does this mean for, for teams? And how do you do the... I can, I can think in my head about how you do the in-person team really well, and now I have a sense of how you do the virtual, fully virtual team really well, and the combination is challenging. Yeah, Sarah, I was going to tell you that you do the virtual team really well. I mean, I think what you've done with our innovation support unit team is awesome, and you have met in person, I was going to say less than half, but maybe about half of them over the last year and a half, right? Of the people that we hired a year ago, I haven't met them in person yet. It, it blows me away that I, I, I know them so well. <laughs> but I've never met them in person. Yeah. And you're right. So then what do you do when it becomes hybrid? Yeah. And I know that I've shared before that I've struggled with hybrid because our practice, some of our clinicians are in clinic providing care. And then there are some of us that are only doing virtual and that includes our team huddles. And so when the team huddle is in-person centric, 
and then the, those who are virtual are on the outside, literally and, and virtually, it, it, it is a real outside feeling. It's not just like, oh, I was sitting in the back row. You know, somebody stands in front of the camera or they forget that they don't realize the microphone's not picking up and you, you literally can't hear the conversation. But suddenly people all bow their heads and you think, what did somebody just die? Those are moments that you have to know and make it digital first. And, and I, I don't know yet how to do it either, but I think we have mm -hmm. to crack that nut for the hybrid teams to really stay and be teams. It's one thing to disseminate information, but to be a team and have that hybridness, you've got to, we've got to figure that out. Yeah, that's a fascinating reflection, Morgan, because I, and again, in some of our care situations, we've been virtual for quite a long time out of necessity. And even with our administrative circles, very early on, we were doing virtually supported conferencing. And I think there is probably going to be a good balance point to find because there's limits to either in-person or virtual. There's benefits and, and limits. So I think we're going to organically figure this out as we move along. And I think it's going to be contextual and I think it's going to be variable. So I don't know that there'll be one way of doing that, but I think it'll depend on the maturity of the teams. I think it'll yeah. depend on maybe the circumstance. If something's very emotionally intensive, virtual may not be the answer at, at that point. Mm. But once you've got a well-established relationship, as we've been learning, you can do a lot virtually, and that has a very positive impact on other areas mm -hmm. in terms of stress, travel, even environmental strain. So, uh, you know, it's a fascinating question, and I think we're now in a position to measure that a little bit as we move ahead out of the fully virtual into the hybrid. The one thing I was thinking about with the hybrid model, I think people need to be aware of it and then intentional decisions have to be made, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than just, mm -hmm. okay, now that half of us are in person, we can start doing the team huddles and we're just going to have people call in. That's where I worry things are going to fall off. Whereas if the team's like, okay, we're going to continue with virtual check-ins so everyone can be on the same page, or we're going to do some kind of intentional hybrid, either one of those works. But I, people need to recognize that there is going to be that shift. And I keep thinking about meetings that I used to sit in where, you know, you'd have someone on speakerphone and everyone else would be there in person and then you'd yeah. forget about the person. Was... Oh, by the way, Joe, have you got any comments? Yeah, it's very true. I was thinking of those exact examples when, when Morgan brought it up. You know, in terms of communications, there has been no one medium that has worked. In all of the years, I've been trying to do communication work with different groups. And I think it's just as many modalities as you need, including sometimes verbal and even back to paper based for some people. So I don't know what the answer for communication is in the, in the long run. You know, in the end, relationship-based uh, relational-based communication and the opportunity to have it. And I think that comes back to protecting time and space. Yeah. And if we don't protect time and space, there's no opportunity to communicate. It is less likely to happen. And, and I think that would be my take home again from communication experience. Great. So now we've kind of gone, gone full circle, right? Thanks so much for your time today. This has been a really great discussion. Yeah, it was fun, Sarah. Thanks. Mm -hmm.